y'all, we have officially made it to episode 100. 100! Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I'm in a singing mood. I've already pissed I, I off know. Tyler. Brittany's been singing uh, for probably the past, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. Well, that sounds a little bit exaggerated, but sure. Well, just saying. (laughs) Now I have Hard Knock Life stuck in my head. (laughs) Guys, we've made it. This is episode 100. It's so weird. I I know. I'm like, oh my god. That's, I don't know how many hours that is. 150 hours-ish? If episodes are an hour and a half each? Yeah. I don't know. That's like a week or something. That's like nonstop. A week of our voices. They're available for you to listen to from beginning to end. (laughs) But y'all, it is just incredible, like, to be here at this milestone. I honestly didn't know if we'd make it or not. No. I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just like 100 episodes is a lot of episodes. It's a lot of episodes. (laughs) And I mean, yeah, like when we started it and earlier on... I never, like, imagined a day we would end, but I also never could picture us being like, this is episode 100. Yeah, absolutely. And if you guys are curious, like, what am I listening to? Well, I don't know why you're curious. You clicked on us. Thank you for the click. But um, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And this is episode 100. Yes, it is. And obviously, with it being the big 100, I was about to say 10, the big 10, um, with it being the big 100, uh, we're going to do something a little special. Um, yeah, it's gonna just going to be a special episode all around. Actually, yeah, all of the different uh, pieces are special and different this episode. <laughs> that was said so smoothly and eloquently. Oh, th- thank you. Thank you. I am, The different um, pieces are different. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I meant like the sections, like our wine and our case and our tub. It's all different. That's what I meant. Everything's different. Um, but... <laughs> Let me go check what the uh, cats just knocked over. Oh my god. We're good. No broken dishes. They were also just excited that it was episode 100. They were so excited. <laughs> um, but first, I want to give a shout out to our newest Patreon Chardonnay Syndicate member, Molly Stevens. Thank you so much for joining the family, joining our Patreon community. Welcome, Molly. We're happy to have you. Hope you're enjoying those murder minis. Yes, hope you are enjoying the 40-some-odd episodes we have. Um, I never remember exactly how many there are. I know you don't, but it's okay. But um, if you want to be awesome, just like Molly, head over to Patreon, check it out, um, and you can get access to a bunch of really awesome stuff, like an untold number of murder minis. <laughs> yes, and while you're at it, be sure you have subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, we're on Pandora, Google Play, uh, Stitcher, all of them, so find us there. All right, so we mentioned that this episode topic's a little special, and... I don't actually know if we've told this story on the podcast. But I don't think we have. Yeah, I don't think we have. But way, way back um, before we started, I had just moved to Austin. And Brittany and I were kind of obsessed with the show American Crime Story. Kind of is a little of an understatement. Just a, just a bit, just a tad bit. Uh, but season two was uh, going on. And it was uh, the story of the assassination of Johnny Versace. And it was one night, Brittany was over, we were watching that, drinking wine, 
when she turned to me and was like, so what if we started a podcast? And that's kind of where it was born. Yeah, just a random moment. And, you know, we obviously talked about it later, had the infamous piece of paper that we've talked about. But yeah, it was out of our obsession of, you know, every week watching the next episode of American Crime Story that we were just like, oh, shit, we're both like really into this. Uh, I mean, like, we've always known that, but it like solidified it, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, because we're both um, the kind of people that when watching stuff like that during commercial breaks, we're like, okay, let's talk about true crime. Absolutely. So because that is kind of where this podcast was birthed, we are going to be doing the case of the assassination of Gianni Versace. And this case, there are so many twists and turns. It's a lot. It is no surprise they were able to make an entire season out of this case. Oh, no surprise at all. And that's why we're dedicating this full episode to the assassination of Johnny Versace, because we want to tell you about all these twists and turns and all the details and the craziness. And you may think you know it all. You don't. <laughs> True. And on top of that, like Tyler was saying, we're changing up the drinks too. So instead of blood and wine, this week we're going to be blood and booze. Um, because we are both featuring our favorite non-wine drink. And by drink, I mean alcoholic beverage, adult beverage. And so, yeah, that's also a little bit different. We don't, we haven't done a non-wine episode in a long time. God, what was our last one? Is it the Russian one? Or Ukraine, where we did vodka. Yeah, that might have been it. We haven't done it since we've been in two different cities. No, we haven't. So, boom. Yeah. So, Brittany, what is your favorite non-wine drink that you're drinking today? So, I made an Aperol Spritz. And I know this drink has gotten some shit all over it in the last, like, year or so. But I don't care. I love them. Yeah, there were, like, all these, like, a tweet or something went out where someone was like, hey, by the way, did y'all know Aperol Spritz is gross? And everyone's like, shut your damn mouth. It's not. Wow. But I have loved Aperol Spritz for a very, very long time. And I have a story attached to mine. And it's something that's very, like, close to me right now, if it makes sense with everything that's been going on. Because I first had an Aperol Spritz when I was in Venice. I was studying abroad back in 2013. And a friend and I were traveling around Italy. We went to Venice, which still to this day, there's not another city like it. And it was summer, middle of the summer, perfect time for an Aperol Spritz. And we would get one everywhere we went. We would sit on outdoor patios, like looking over all the water. And at this time, I really wasn't drinking much more than like wine, beer, and like a margarita. So an Aperol Spritz was something very different. And I remember thinking like, oh God, this is so this is bitter, like I like it, but this is different. And if you don't know what makes an Aperol Spritz, it is Prosecco or any other sparkling wine, but they're traditionally made with Prosecco. An Aperol, you may have seen it on the shelf, it's like bright orange, and it's a classic Italian bitter aperitif. And it has like rhubarb in it and a few other ingredients. And it's just very popular in the summertime. So you basically do almost like an even pour or maybe like a little bit more Prosecco. So like 
Generally, I do mine like two ounces Prosecco, two to three ounces Prosecco, and then like two ounces of Aperol. And then you just do a splash of soda water and it's perfect. You do it over ice and I'm absolutely obsessed with them. And while I was saying all of this, I remembered it was not a tweet. It was an article by the New York Times um, that I disagree with. But Aperol Spritz is, it's my thing. I love them. I actually don't buy it and have it at home because I feel like I would want to drink them all the time. And I don't want to ruin it. Fair. I don't think I've ever actually had an Aperol Spritz. I'm sure I've had a taste of one of yours, but I I don't think I've ever had one to myself. I love it. It's made by Campari, who owns Aperol. And Campari is actually another aperitif beverage but it's it's like even more bitter it's also really good you can also have a campari spritz which i've never had one but i would like to it was first produced and like introduced into the world in like 1919 so it's you know nearly 100 years old but uh i love it all the same well it'd be a little over 100 years old oh yeah it would be 101 (laughs) yep (laughs) i don't know why in my head i thought it was 2010 I went way back in time there for a second. Wow, you did. Okay. <laughs> that or I'm just really bad at math and we're just going to let it be. I mean, it's fair. I 100% am still at the stage of 1970. Oh, 30 years ago. Nope, 50. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, um, Tyler, what's your drink that you're going to be having today? So mine is probably my favorite drink in the world. Um, and it is actually just a Strongbow original dry cider. God, it's so good. There's no American cider like it. No. Austin East Cider is kind of in that general area. Seattle Cider's kind of in that general area. But Strongbow, it's so crisp. It's so appley. And for those of y'all that don't know, it is like the most popular cider in England. And it's also like cheap and basic. Yep. It, it's kind of like the Bud Light of England. Yeah, it's um, the Bud Light of cider. Basically. <laughs> but um, I first had it when I was um, 18. Me and my friend went to London for like three weeks uh, after freshman year of college. We went into pubs and stuff. And I was like, ooh, I guess I'll try this cider. Fell in love with it. I also may have gotten a little drunk and accidentally, like, rolled my glass of cider that, as it shattered, uh, down the steps that lead up to, like, St. Paul's Cathedral. So that was me, my B. So when I came back to the U.S., um, I was like, I want to find this. <laughs> and you could find it in 20, I don't know what would have been, 12, I guess. You could find it in liquor stores and stuff. And then it disappeared from America. For years. Well, they changed the recipe. Like, original dry went away. And Strongbow was like, oh, Strongbow gold apple, which is sweet and no thank you. Because they were like, Americans like sweet cider, right? And I'm like, yes, but they don't know what they're talking about. And then probably like two years ago, I was walking in... A liquor store or a grocery store, I don't remember. We were at H-E-B. I was with you. Oh, we were at the grocery store. Yeah. And I saw it. Because I had also made a habit of going and checking. Like, oh, I'm just going to walk by the ciders. Just just to see. And 
y'all, when I tell you I'm obsessed with this, I literally got onto the Strongbow website multiple times to see if I could, like, order it from England. You can't do that, by the way. (laughs) But Strongbow Original, it's here. It's so good. You left out the best part of the story and that you pretty much bought every single one they had on the shelf. There were like four four packs and you were like, I'm buying them all. I haven't had this in years. (laughs) Yeah, You know, I definitely bought all that were available (laughs) that they put out. So I'm just saying I love it. Yes, it's my favorite cider too, because I used to not like ciders because I was like, oh, that's too sweet. I don't like it. And then I tried a Strongbow when I was in England as well. And I was like, oh, no, this is different. This is amazing. Yeah. And there's, I mean, Strongbow Draft is still just oh, so good. perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the can, it's still a perfect. So I'm going to open mine up. Your drink's already made. I'm going to just. Yeah, mine's definitely already made. And I've, I've taken a sip of it because it's just sitting here sweating and I, I needed it. But. Well, we should still cheers. I don't have anything to cheers with. I don't have the I bottle. I actually don't either because I don't have the wine bottle. All right. Well, we're just going to have to like say it to each other. I We could slap our drinks. I'm not doing that, but. <laughs> okay, fair. Well, okay. Well, then cheers. Cheers. So good. I'm going to have. Uh. I'm going to have ice clinking throughout the whole episode. And God, it's amazing. I didn't have an orange slice. So a lot of the times an Aperol Spritz does have an orange slice in it. And I have an orange, but I only have one orange. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I want to eat that orange for like breakfast. And so I didn't decide to cut it up. That is a sad breakfast, an orange. No, with my breakfast. Like the other day I had like two eggs, toast, and an orange. Okay. Okay. (laughs) That, That makes me feel better. Well, all right. We have our favorite drinks. We have our case. Brittany, why don't you uh, take it away? All right. Well, we have a wealth of sources because like we were talking about at the beginning, this case was featured in Ryan Murphy's second season of American Crime Story. The first season was O.J. Simpson versus the people, the people versus O.J., which I highly recommend also. So, There are plenty of articles out there. A lot of them are, you know, comparing the show to the actual case and like how similar they are. So here's our long laundry list of sources. We have an article from Town and Country by Nancy Billiou, an article in Time, an article in Biography by Meredith Worthen, an article from History.com, an article from Harper's Bazaar by Emma Dibden, an article from Vanity Fair by Maureen Orth. And the Wikipedia page for Andrew Kunanen. The assassination of Gianni Versace was one of those things that had this huge cultural impact. It was almost as high profile as like the murder of Sharon Tate uh, by the Manson family. And the deaths of Beverly Hills couple Jose and Kitty Menendez, which was when the Menendez brothers killed their parents in 1989. So the assassination of Gianni Versace is up in that same level. I mean, first and foremost, the fact that it's known as an assassination. Yes, that is a very good point. It is known as an assassination, not a murder. And I 100% agree with that term. And especially once we get to how it was done, he was assassinated. So some of you may not know exactly who Johnny Versace is. I mean, you obviously know, or maybe you don't, but Versace is a luxury line of clothes and he's the founder. He's the one. He is the Versace. 
Yeah. He's Versace. He's Versace. <laughs> so on December 2nd, 1946 is when he was born in Reggio Calabria, which is at the tip of Italy's boot. So when you look at Italy, you know, it's like a boot. It's where the, the toe is, I guess. And Oh, okay. And he was the son of an appliance salesman and the village seamstress. But he really wasn't very interested in school. He wanted to be with his mom in her workshop. He wanted to learn how to sew and how to make dresses. Because his mom made these gorgeous wedding dresses for all the brides in their community. So when he was in his mid-20s, he was in Milan. And Milan was the, the like hot new epicenter for fashion. So clearly... His mom worked with him, he learned how to do this, and he was a very successful designer. And his first mm-hmm. collection was shown on March 28, 1978, at the Permanente, um, which was a contemporary art museum. He became the darling of Milan, as he was called, uh, with his, his clothes were very provocative. And they there was this rivalry that started between him and Giorgio Armani. The saying went, Armani dresses the wife, Versace dresses the mistress. And again, it's because his clothes are... I know, don't you love that? (laughs) Um, But it's because, like, his clothes are more provocative. He was pushing the lines. He was pushing the boundaries. He was doing something that was different. Through all of this, Versace became one of the most famous designers of the era, and he is credited with creating the phenomenon of the supermodel. So he made women like Linda Evangelista, Christy Turlington, and his absolute favorite runway model was Naomi Campbell. And he found her, he made her. And so these are names we all know. And that's all because of Versace. Damn, I guess I did not realize how much he basically started the idea of what we think of as like fashion today. Like indirectly, Gianni Versace is responsible for Project Runway. I mean, you could really easily transfer, like, create that path, I'm sure. I, that is not a stretch of the imagination. No. And I, I don't own any Versace, and I would absolutely love to. Um, I can't afford any Versace. <laughs> that's why I don't own it. <laughs> I have one Valentino shirt, and it's just like, it, it's like one of my nice things. But it's also like really out there, so I don't really wear it. So there I have you go. some shirts from Express. It's about as nice as I have. Fancy. (laughs) So even more than that, more than creating the supermodel and kind of defining this new era of fashion, his aesthetic offered a very refreshing contrast to the architectural simplicity of his predecessors, those that were creating before him. His designs were very vibrant and sultry and fun. Wasn't um, the J-Lo dress, wasn't that Versace? Yeah. Yeah. The, the green, like... Oh, we all know what dress you're talking about. Yeah. The one where it's like... Dress. Where it's like, oh, that's buckled. Is your boob going to pop out? Are both your boobs going to pop out? No, it was like... She must have had some serious duct tape going on. But, seriously. I mean, when I think vibrant, sultry, and fun, I think of the green J-Lo dress, so... Yeah. So, some of his designs are known forever. And they're iconic. And he was extremely successful. He had homes all over Italy. One specifically was at Lake Cuomo. And then he also lived in South Beach in Miami. Johnny Versace had a partner of 15 years, Antonio D'Amico. Um, and so he was gay. Represent. <laughs> yes. I mean, and he was big in the homosexual community. And it just, that was who he was. And he lived his truth. And... Antonio was his partner. Again, you know, they weren't able to 
actually get married, but they were together for 15 years and Antonio lived with him in Miami. So on July 10th in 1997, Versace arrived in Miami to stay at this very opulent mansion that he was living in, in the South Beach area. So on the morning of July 15th, so just five days later, 50-year-old Versace gets up um, closer to like 6 a.m. South Beach is a very like lazy, relaxed, you know, it's a nightlife place. So there's not many people out that early, but he gets up because he has to make calls to Milan. Um, he did some work and then decided to head over to a news cafe. He wanted to get some coffee, see what the, what fashion magazines were out. And it was just like three blocks from his home. So he walks over there, gets Vogue, the New Yorker, and then he he heads back to his mansion. And this is a mansion that is more like a palace. He spent millions acquiring and renovating this place. And everyone knew that was where Versace lived. Like everyone knew. Yeah, Honestly, at least from what I remember from the show, from the American Crime Story show, it's like a Miami Versailles. That's a good comparison. This place was fucking huge. So he walks up five marble steps, pulls out his key, and he's slipping it into the lock in this like iron gate to let him into his property. And it's at that exact moment, this guy with dark hair, knee length shorts, gray tank top, baseball cap, and like a backpack climbs the stairs behind him. And this is when Andrew Cunanan shot Johnny Versace twice, execution style, once in the back of the head. And once was actually to his left cheek, Johnny Versace kind of turned around and looked at him before he took that shot and kunanin just casually walks away leaving versace there to die his goal was to leave johnny versace's face unrecognizable he wanted to disfigure him and inside their home versace's partner antonio he heard these shots and quickly ran outside antonio was one of the first people to find johnny versace's body So how did the two of them actually know each other? How did Andrew Cunanan and Johnny Versace cross paths? Well, there's a story that back in 1990, Versace was in town because he had designed some costumes for the San Francisco Opera. On October 21st, as an eyewitness supposedly recalls, Cunanan was really pleased at this nightclub. Uh, Versace was there, Cunanan was there, And Versace seems to, like, recognize him. He, like, points to him and says, I know you. And at this time, Cunanan's, like, 21 years old. And Versace says, Lago de Como, no? And Cunanan replies, thank you for remembering me, Signor Versace. We don't actually know if there was anything to really remember um, or if Cunanan had ever even been to Versace's house on Lake Cuomo. But this is the only potential meeting that the two of them could have had. But we actually don't really know if it's true. Also, during Versace's stay, Cunanan met this guy named Eric Grunwald, who is now a lawyer there in Los Angeles at Colossus, which was one of the nightclubs. And Cunanan, when he was with Eric, he was still like just gushing over the fact that he had just, you know, re-encountered Versace and he's telling like, he's like spins the truth. And he says to Eric, he's like, I said, if you're Johnny Versace, then I'm Coco Chanel. Like just, you know, this like over the top storytelling braggadocious 
shit. It also just blows my mind, you know, Andrew Cunanan is just like at a club in San Francisco and Johnny Versace is like, hey, you. I'm like, what? I know. I'm like, that wouldn't happen. Which it, we don't know if it even did. So who's Andrew Cunanan? Like, who the fuck is this guy? Well, he didn't really seem destined for a life of crime. He came from a middle-class San Diego family. His father was a Philippines-born stockbroker of varying success, and his mother was an Italian-American homemaker who suffered from uh, some forms of mental illness. Cunanan's most formative influence may have been uh, during his high school years when he was at the elite bishop school in La Jolla, which he attended from 1981 to 1987. So maybe that was like middle school and high school. I don't know. Eh, probably, yeah. Um, His parents were definitely struggling to pay this like private school tuition. They even mortgaged their home so their youngest child could go there. I mean, yeah, like La Jolla's like money yeah i mean as in again they had to like mortgage their home to get him to go like it they were sacrificing everything so he could have this education this is like a high school that's more expensive than a university exactly and kunanin hid his background he didn't want his classmates to know that he wasn't super privileged and so he hinted that he was potentially even royalty that he was just like way up there When he was a teenager, though, he did develop a reputation as a prolific liar. He would tell all these fantastic tales about his family and his personal life, and he would constantly change his appearance depending on what he felt was most attractive in any given moment and where he was going to look the best. And he had this very, like, carefree persona of the rich bad boy, You've seen this type of character in, like, movies, and he's just, he's so fake. I mean, he would even sometimes say shit like, Huh, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to fly to New York or Paris for dinner tonight. Like, literally just dirtbag. Piece of shit. I don't think people thought he was a piece of shit, but, like, reading it, I'm like, ew, that's disgusting. I would just be so unimpressed. Yeah. I'd be like... Okay, do you have a personality or is your, like, bank account your entire personality? I mean, that's the thing. He didn't even really have the bank account. Um, Exactly. (laughs) He identified as gay when he was in high school. And that was when he started hooking up with wealthy older men. And he was voted least likely to be forgotten. So people knew who he was and they knew what he was doing. God, that is a... um... What's a thing in like a movie or a story when, you know, they show some little something in the beginning and then you realize at the end, holy shit, that's what it means. Foreshadowing? Yes, that is that is the <laughs> word, foreshadowing. That, you know, quote unquote, least likely to be forgotten is some uh, blatant foreshadowing, <laughs> except this is real life. It is real life. In 1988, when he was 19 years old, he was a student at UC San Diego. He started to frequent the local gay clubs and restaurants. And his mother, who was very religious, she learned that he was gay. They had this huge argument. And Andrew actually ended up throwing his mom against the wall and dislocated her shoulder. So at a young age, he's showing violent activity. 
And in December 1995, Andrew met David Madsen, who was a Minneapolis architect in a San Francisco bar. They really hit it off and started a long-distance relationship shortly after they met. But Madsen ended their relationship in the spring of 1996. He told friends that he thought Andrew Cunanan was a little bit shady. Cunanan told his friends that Madsen was the love of his life. So they very much had different perspectives of the other person. In San Diego, Cunanan also met and became really close friends with someone named Jeffrey Trail, who was a former Navy guy who later moved to Minneapolis with Madsen. So before the spring of 1997, Cunanan had no criminal record at all. But this is also when he started his killing spree. In late April 1997, Cunanan traveled to Minnesota to visit Trail and Madsen. And on April 27th, after an argument at Madsen's apartment, Cunanan beat Trail with a hammer and he killed him. On April 29th, two of Madsen's co-workers concerned that Madsen still hadn't been to work, they hadn't heard from him, they went to his apartment to check on him, and that's when they discovered Trail's body rolled up in the rug and placed behind the sofa. Why roll someone in a rug if you're just going to put it behind the sofa? Like, are you trying to hide someone's body or not? It sounded like maybe he was trying to hide it, maybe get rid of it, but then realized that was too hard and just left it and left. Oh my god, that's just so... I mean, murder is disrespectful, but just disrespectful is like, well, it's too much work, I'll leave him here. That or it was just a really dumb, weird staging... I don't know. So Madsen was Andrew Cunanan's second murder victim. Madsen was actually being held hostage by Cunanan. That's why he hadn't gone back to work. And on May 2nd, Madsen and Cunanan were seen north of Minneapolis, driving in Madsen's Jeep and eating lunch together in a bar. On the morning of May 3rd, Madsen's body was found on the east shore of Rush Lake near Rush City, Minnesota, with gunshot wounds to his head and back. Cunanan took his red jeep and left. So two days later, Cunanan's in Chicago, and he's not done yet. He's not done with his killing. He gained access to the estate of wealthy developer Lee Miglin, who was an older man, I believe, like in his 70s. And so it's yeah. it's back to that, you know, looking for these wealthy older guys. Yeah, and Lee Miglin, his wife was like a QVC personality right yeah. like she was known yeah she was and he was he was known so Cunanan gets into his home ends up bounding his hands and feet and wrapped his head with duct tape which i think is one of the most terrifying things because <sighs> when it's being put on you're probably like okay this is probably never coming off because i don't know how this would come off no yeah Cunanan stabbed Miglin more than 20 times with a screwdriver, slit his throat with a hacksaw, and stole his car. That is just so much more brutal. Uh, Well, I guess he did kill Trail by beating him to death with a hammer. His, like, M.O. is all over the place. It's all over the place, because with Versace, it was literally execution style, like, bang, bang, walk away. With Madsen, it was also a couple of bullet wounds. But Trail and Miglin, these were just extremely violent deaths that took more force and time. Especially yeah, I, especially Miglin's. Yeah, Miglin's, that's straight up torture. 
Micklin's family maintain that the killing was random, but former FBI agent Greg McCrary argues it's unlikely that Kunanen would have found and tortured Micklin without some type of motive. Yeah. Maybe it was a single chance encounter. Maybe they didn't actually know each other. But something seems like Kunanen convinced him to let him into his house, that maybe they were going to do some type of sex game, and Kunanen was actually just, like, tying him up and binding him to kill him. In my mind, yeah, they had to know each other, or at least have some kind of relationship for Kunanen to specifically drive to Chicago and only his house kind of thing. We don't know that he drove directly to his house. Oh, that's true. He could have met him somewhere. I mean, Andrew Kunanen had gone around the scenes. He had already tried to schmooze with the wealthy. There are some other things that he did that I know we're not going to get into, but there was someone where he was essentially, I think, living with him or just always with him. They were together. Maybe he worked for him. Oh, he was like the houseboy, kind of. Yes. And... There's just, there's a lot of situations where he learned how to weasel his way in to this type of life and these type of people. So I would not put it past him to have met Miglin somewhere out in Chicago. He would have known where to go to find the type of wealthy man that was like a closeted gay older man and get what he wanted. So Andrew Kunanen then steals, like I said, Miglin's car and he drove east to New Jersey. But there was a car phone in that car. And they had been able to track where his car was stolen. Andrew Kunanen notices it a little too late and throws it out the window. But he knows he's like, shit, I need a new car. I can't drive this one anymore. So on May 9th, when he was in Pennsville Township, New Jersey, at Finns Point National Cemetery, Kunanen shot and killed 45-year-old caretaker William Reese. And it was because he needed to steal his truck. Later that day, when Reese didn't return home for dinner, his wife visited the cemetery to check on him, and she found his office door ajar with the radio playing inside, but he wasn't in there. So when he's not in there, she's definitely worried, and she calls the police, they come, and that's when they find Reese shot in the head. But unlike Kunanin's other victims, who were killed for what seemed like personal reasons, like I said... It seems like Hunanen really just murdered Reese because he needed his truck. He had a 1995 red Chevy pickup, and Kunanen used that to drive to Florida. On June 12th, Kunanen was listed on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list. So he had a very quick succession of multiple murders. Yeah. And the FBI was on his trail, but they didn't really know enough information to ever really get ahead of him so clearly andrew kunanen is like this extremely complex character yeah so he was put on the fbi's most wanted list on june 12th like i said and then about a month later on july 15th that is when he assassinated johnny versace so after assassinating versace uh witnesses that saw it happen say that the killer just walked away and went down an alley and then went down another alley And there, a nearby hotel did catch him walking away on security camera. But again, he's just being all casual, walking away like like it was nothing. Like he didn't just assassinate someone in their, basically their front yard. Yeah. So the alley where the hotel security camera caught him, 
Um, it's directly across the street from this like $4 a day parking lot. And witnesses saw him going into the parking lot. I think it was a garage, but saw him go in. He changed clothes beside a red pickup truck, which was the one he stole from William Reese. So he gets there, changes his clothes, and by this point, I mean, police are swarming on the area. The investigation is starting because he was just shot right there. So it's at this time that police are everywhere that a garage attendant found the ticket for this truck, like, for when it, like, went into the garage, and it had been parked there since June 10th. So, like, over a month, the truck has been sitting there. And the way this garage works is the drivers only pay when they leave. So, cars sit there pretty regularly. Also, with it being a pay-by-day lot, it's kind of like a long-term parking thing. And so it's usually takes, like, six weeks for the garage owners to be like, is this person ever coming back? <laughs> and that truck had just been there. When investigators find his truck, they're in the parking garage, find his truck, that's when they found his discarded clothes. They were just laying on the ground next to his truck from when Andrew Cunanan, like, changed and went into disguise. Into, like, another disguise. All the disguises. Dude's like a chameleon. Yeah. So there were a lot of things, though, in the truck that were pretty identifiable as Andrew Cunanan's. Um, in the truck, they found his passport. There was a personal check. And there was also a pawn shop ticket. Because previously, Andrew Cunanan had stolen a gold coin from Lee Miglin's house when he murdered him there. And he'd taken it to a pawn shop there in Miami and pawned it off. So he had the, like, receipt ticket thing for it. And one of the just craziest things about this is he should have been caught before all of this. Because the law is that when pawned goods come in, pawn shops, like, take a record of the thumbprint or fingerprints on it and send it to Miami police. Because Andrew Cunanan was on the FBI's most wanted list for... A month at this point, if the police had checked that thumbprint, they would have known Andrew Cunanan was there in Miami and could have stopped this before it happened. So with everything they found in the truck, all the information they found, it only took police a couple hours after the shooting to identify Andrew Cunanan, the man on the most wanted list, as the prime suspect in the shooting. And so while this investigation is taking over, not just South Beach, but basically all of Miami. Oh, yeah. Johnny Versace's siblings are flying in from Milan to identify and recover his body. Just can't. Um, oh, God, that's horrible. Like thinking about yeah. one of your family members being assassinated so far away when you were just nowhere near, mm -hmm. you couldn't do anything. Not that you could have if you were near. You know? No. But it's that feeling of like, oh, God, could I have prevented this? Well, and then just having to sit on the 10-hour plane ride. That's torture. But when they got there, they claimed Johnny's body and they returned uh, to Italy with him. So you, like most people, uh, are probably asking yourself, wait, 
this timeline's confusing the shit out of me. I mean, it is. He had, <laughs> I mean, yeah, he had his, like, very quick four-person murder spree back in late April, early May. And then what the shit was he doing for two months until he murdered Johnny Versace? Yeah. And still had the truck. Yeah, still had the truck. Um, The fuck, basically. So on May 11th, just two days after he murdered William Reese and stole his truck in New Jersey, he arrived in Miami. He basically drove straight there. That sounds like an awful drive, New Jersey to Miami. Sounds long. Spend the night in what? North Carolina? Probably. Or South Carolina, because didn't he, like, change the plates or something? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I th- actually think it, he probably did spend the night in South Carolina, because yeah. I think he put South Carolina plates on the truck to, like, diversion. Well, I mean, if, if anyone in New Jersey was looking for his truck, number one, they're probably not looking far outside of New Jersey, but, yeah, get rid of those plates. That totally ties yeah. him to William Reese. Well, and the thing is, at this point right now, we're still a month away from him being put on the FBI Most Wanted list. So... Right. I think he was pretty much a suspect in at least some of the murders at this point, but I don't think all the connections had been drawn yet, and I don't think, like, the nation had kind of mobilized yet. But when he gets to Miami on May 11th, he books a room at the Normandy Plaza Hotel, it's like $27 a night in Miami. Like, yes, it's the late 90s, but that only amounts to like $45 today or something. It's a gross motel. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like one of those grungy ones where you just don't even ask why someone's checking in. You just take their money and give them the key. Yeah, it's it's the kind that when you go to check in, you get to the counter and no one's there. And you're like, I don't know what to do. This is my hotel. This is where I'm staying. How do I get the key? And like 15 minutes later, the person comes out of the back room because they were watching TV and is like, what? I I have a a reservation. Okay. No, I don't think you make reservations at a place like this. I think you just walk in. (laughs) I mean, it's not a pay by the hour motel. I still don't think you make reservations. This one is not on Hotwire. (laughs) That's that's true. Um, But this hotel which i'm just gonna say normandy plaza hotel i would think it's nice i would assume with that name it's nice it's not well andrew was only pretending to have money he didn't actually have it well true (laughs) he baroque his shit uh but this hotel is just about four miles away from versace's mansion and so over the next two months andrew kunanen basically lived in miami under just different characters um he spent time doing a bunch of drugs eating fast food he stole a lot um he went to a bunch of different gay nightclubs where he probably was looking for sugar daddies to like i don't know buy him mcdonald's or meth probably meth how have we gotten this far in the episode and haven't said sugar daddy a single time because that's exactly what he was looking for yeah i know but we just weren't so overt about it like Totally should have made that clear earlier when I was talking, because obviously he's looking for sugar daddies. I mean, it kind of sounds like he's been looking for sugar daddies since he was in high school. Definitely anything to make it look like he has this rich and wealthy and fancy lifestyle that he doesn't have. Yeah, he's living this honestly very destructive life. 
he's kind of imploding on himself is what it sounds like. Yeah. And he does that for two months. He's in Miami. So the entire period that police are looking for him, he's on the FBI's most wanted list, all that. He's right there in Miami going out and stuff. But he's also changing his appearance all the time. Um, Sometimes his hair would be like black. Sometimes it's almost white, which as we all know, or at least as gay men all know, anything in your life happens and you bleach your hair. It's how we cope. It's just what we do. (laughs) You bleach your hair or you like shave it. Good to know. I know changing your hair, getting bangs. That that's what women do when we need to change. We yeah. get bangs. Yeah, bleaching your hair is the gay guy's version of getting bangs. Which, uh, by the way, getting bangs or bleaching your hair is not the answer. It's not not the answer. I know, as someone who clearly bleaches their hair, but it's done like professionally, so I call it like platinum blonde, and it's like heavy highlights. That's true. Don't don't sit in your bathtub and, you know, have your little bottle of $3 bleach you got at Walmart and you're crying to yourself, putting it on your hair, probably singing a little like, I don't know, Melissa Etheridge or something. I don't know, just a scenario that popped into my mind. I mean, you don't want to do it that way because otherwise your hair is going to end up the color of my Aperol spritz. So don't bleach your own hair, people. Yeah, just get it done. Um, okay. So he's changed his appearance all the time, and not even just, like, dyeing his hair. Sometimes his hair is curly, sometimes it's straight. So either he's got, like, boss-ass con air, like, <laughs> hair shit, or he's probably wearing wigs. I'm gonna I'm gonna go towards the wigs. So, I mean, like you said earlier, he is clearly hiding in plain sight. Like, he is he right is. there. Well, and you can also find pictures online oh. of just different... I mean, I guess disguises he would wear, but it's not like disguise disguises. It's just like he parts his hair a different way and wears glasses and he looks like a completely different person. Well, that's what Ted Bundy did. That's exactly what Ted Bundy did, which I don't know why the fuck I bring him up in like every episode. Sorry, but he is like one of those like super serial killers that I feel like you can see pieces of in all these other serial killers. But this whole disguising yourself, parting your hair to look a little bit different, getting a haircut, shaving your face, gaining weight, losing weight, like, that was totally Mm -hmm. Ted Bundy. Well, and it just blows my mind, because when I think, like, disguising yourself, I always think, you know, like, going to extreme stuff, like wearing a fake beard, or like, (laughs) you know, theater makeup to make you look older or whatever. But it literally is like... Shave your face and part your hair differently and you look like a different person. Some people, yeah. I mean, if I were literally to dye my hair brown and part it down the middle and get a new pair of glasses, I'm just trying to think of how I would make myself look different. I would look very different as a brunette. I mean, I've been a brunette in the past. I haven't been in a long time. I don't plan on being. You haven't. But I'm just saying. I'm going to start parting my hair down the middle. <laughs> Do you remember that picture I have of you where you kind of yes, look like Willy Wonka? Parted... <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. Um... <laughs> That's when Tyler had like this fro going on because he truly has very curly hair and it's beautiful, but he hates it. So you never get to so see I it. So I flat iron the <laughs> shit out of it. Probably like Andrew Cunanan did. With his Conair shit? You know the thing that's like a combination crimper, flat iron, blow dryer, and comb? And it's just like, what the fuck is that? (laughs) It's like the uh, Swiss Army knife of hair tools. 
Yeah, but it's $11 at Walmart, and it's like, you look at that, and it will set your hair on fire, <laughs> and then break. Your hair just falls out looking at it, so don't look too long. Basically. So, anyway, Andrew Cunanan, living his life in Miami, being super destructive, and always being a different person for two months. And um, here's another thing that'll piss you off. So on July 11th, four days before Johnny Versace's assassination, a fast food employee had seen, had been watching like America's Most Wanted and saying the, have you seen this man? And Andrew Cunanan's picture. And Andrew Cunanan, fast food fiend here, walks in and the employee's like, oh, fuck. What would you do? In the, I mean, obviously you call 911 or whatever number you were provided. But also, like, how scary would that be? If you're like, um, would you like to supersize that? And you're like, oh my god, this guy's killed five people. Four people at this point. Yeah, I do not know how I would react in that situation. Just being like, oh shit. Because you also know, like, I can't make a scene or, like, let him know that I recognize him because maybe he'll kill me. Or something. Uh, well, there's actually a special today that you get 25% off your meal if you eat it in the restaurant. <laughs> if you sit here and stay, um, you can actually get a free crab cake with your fish and chicken basket. I, in my mind, it's at Long John Silver's. <laughs> That's <what> to say. <laughs> Although it just says fast food, we don't know. McDonald's, no. Long John Silver's, fuck, maybe Wendy's. I don't know. You know what? Get a frosty. Sometimes I love destroying myself with launch on silvers. <laughs> Listen, I destroy myself with milkshakes. You destroy yourself with launch on silvers. One quick sidebar about Long John Silvers, though, which international listeners or people who don't know what Long John Silvers is in general, it's um maybe the most delicious, grossest, like hot, greasy fish fast food restaurant. It's disgusting, and it's amazing. Which, I don't even um, eat the fish. I get chicken. Oh, I get a piece of fish and a piece of chicken. Oh, they're fish And it all tastes really the good. same. It does. It's, oh, God. Uh, when I lived in Seattle, me and my friend really wanted Long John Silver's. First off, we live in Seattle. Seafood <laughs> is not hard to come by. What is wrong good, with you? cheap seafood, not hard to come by. We wanted Long John Silver's. The closest one was in Kent. And so we drove for an hour to go to a Long John Silver's, and it was fucking worth it. That is probably the saddest uh, story I've ever heard. But also, listen, I may have done the same thing. It greases up your insides and just... Basically, it's a cleanse, honestly. It's healthy. <laughs> yeah. Rumor has it, Beyonce ate Long John Silver's to prepare for Dreamgirls. She didn't. She did the master cleanse. I mean, it's totally a cleanse because none of that is going to stay inside you for very long. No, you basically swallow the hush puppy and it comes right out. But no, this is so gross. Anyways, back to, like, murder and true crime. Uh, but anywho, so fast food worker's like, oh shit, that's him, and calls the police. But the police got there too late. Andrew Cunanan left with his bag of hot greasy fish and or a burger. And then four days later was when he murdered Johnny Versace. So this is the second time that like not even just a oh they almost could have been caught as in oh they were at like a traffic light next to a cop but like 
literally almost got caught. You know, pawn shop had sent his thumbprint to the police previously. This fast food worker recognized him, called the police, and they're just a little too late. Sounds like the Miami PD was being a little slow, which is actually a big criticism of this case. Yeah, Miami PD did uh, not do a great job with this. Also, again, the fact that he was literally not in hiding, living it up in Miami for two months, one of those months being on the FBI's most wanted list. And I'm just saying, yes, he did disguise himself a bunch and all that. Obviously not well enough for this fast food worker not to recognize him. So just saying. Yep. And like, again, he's going out to clubs. One of his favorite spots is a diner in town. That's also like where the cops go to hang out. So he's literally on the FBI's most wanted list and basically not given a fuck. He's being very visible and living his life. But after he killed Johnny Versace, like with how high profile that was, Andrew Cunanan, like actually this time, did try to take on a lower profile and hide out a little bit. So the investigation, the scale of it was insane. It was a nationwide manhunt for Cunanan after he murdered Versace. And at this point, it was well known that Andrew Cunanan was this chameleon guy who could change his appearance and shit. And there were over a thousand agents across the country looking for him. And that was one of the biggest manhunts in history. Wow. That's a, I mean, yeah, that's a lot of agents. That's a lot of hours and money and people looking for him. So a week after his assassination, Versace's memorial service was held in Milan, and his funeral was just as extravagant as you would expect from Versace. The funeral took place at the Duomo in Milan, which is this gigantic 14th century cathedral. Over 2,000 people attended, and there were a bunch of celebrities Princess Diana was there, Elton John, Naomi Campbell, um, and then other people that are huge in the fashion world like Giorgio Armani and Karl Lagerfeld. It was, I mean, huge. I I can't think of a celebrity funeral off the top of my head that is more contemporary than I can think of. Yeah, I mean, this was extravagance to the top. And, like, I think Princess Diana was one of his highest profile clients, And of course, even Anna Winter was there. And I mean, she had, I've read some amazing things that she said about him. I mean, she's the editor-in-chief at Vogue. And she's a name that everyone knows. You know what she looks like. (laughs) Uh, Like, honestly, uh, if you've seen Devil Wears Prada, Meryl Streep's character is allegedly based on Anna Winter. Allegedly. Please don't come at me, Anna. But also, oh my god, if you listen to this podcast, hi. Hi. Um. So, yeah, his funeral was a huge event. And actually, one day after his funeral, on July 23rd, that was when the search for Andrew Cunanan ended. And it all ended just 40 blocks away from Versace's home on a, like, two-story houseboat that Cunanan had broken into. So even with all of the investigators swarming the area looking for him, he still didn't even go that far. Yep, he was still right there. So, how it happened. How it all ended. 
this caretaker who um, was checking on the property. It's supposed to be, like, abandoned, like, no one's there. Or, I guess, unoccupied, not abandoned. <laughs> it's not, like, decrepit, fallen apart. It's a normal houseboat. Um, but he's checking on it, and he's like, uh, there's someone in there. That shouldn't be happening. And then he heard a gunshot. So immediately, he calls the police. He's like, I, I don't know. Y'all looking for someone. There's someone hiding in this houseboat. There was a gunshot. Do something. Please come. And the Miami Depa- Police Department actually did something this time. Like, what? <laughs> um, so the SWAT team came in and, like, surrounded the place. And they even threw, like, a bunch of tear gas grenades and stuff onto the boat to knock out Andrew Cunanan. Then they went in. But it took more than 12 hours after, like, starting the mobilization, after all of that, for them to announce that they had found his body on his second floor bedroom. Because the gunshot that the caretaker had heard, that was Andrew Cunanan shooting himself with the same gun he used to kill Madsen, Reese, and Versace. So he didn't leave any suicide note. He didn't leave any explanation for what he did. The only thing, he was next to a stack of magazines, um, including Vogue. So because he didn't leave a note, and because he also did not tell anyone why he killed Versace, we're never really going to know why, like what his motive was. All of it's just going to be speculation. And same with all the other murders. We don't know why he did those either. Exactly. I mean, with um, like Lee Miglin's murder, for example... There's a lot of speculation of like, oh, maybe they were like having an affair or something. But that's what it is, is speculation. And honestly, in doing research for this, it was hard to find legit sources that really explained a lot of it. Because there's not an explanation that's known. Which is one of the most frustrating things. Yeah. So some reports claimed that Kunanen had told friends that he was HIV positive and that he was murdering these former lovers out of a desire to get vengeance on whoever had uh, given him HIV. But his autopsy showed that he was HIV negative. So that kind of theory of motive ran pretty dry. So while his suicide did lead to an end of this nationwide manhunt, it only scratched the surface to begin answering thousands of questions. At the time of his death, Andrew Cunanan had only been charged in the killings of Madsen, Reese, and Miglin. He still had yet to be charged in the murders of Versace or Trail. So with all of this, and we've kind of touched on some parts... There were a ton of accusations on what could have been done more to prevent Versace from being assassinated. The police department could have done more. You know, there there were so many things that happened before that could have ended it. But for his family, they just were trying to move on, move forward, not move on. Move on's not the correct word. Move forward. Yeah, they just wanted to move forward with their lives because that's what he would have wanted. After Gianni Versace's murder, his younger sister, Donatella, who was also his muse for a lot of his creations, 
she fell really hard into depression and drug addiction to try to cope with this. And she nearly lost her place in the company, um, Versace. But her friend, Elton John, which is a weird statement, (laughs) um, urged her to go to rehab and basically saved her life. Johnny's brother, Santo Versace, he had been overseeing the, like, business side of the Versace brand. So Johnny was, like, the creative and the artist, and Santo was more of the business side. He and Donatella, they clashed. They fought a lot. They were basically the two now heading the company. And after Johnny's death, things were not going well. But in the last decade... The company has made a big comeback, both Santo and Donatella leading it. And today, the Versace Empire is still privately owned by the family and is valued at over $1.7 billion. And while Johnny Versace was killed, his legacy didn't end. And it continues today. There's more than 1,500 Versace boutiques around the world. And so while... He may be gone. His name very much lives on. Well, and like we were talking about, his name lives on at a price point that we still can't afford. (laughs) Yeah, I don't make Lady Gaga money. I can't afford Versace. (laughs) But it's just, I'm so glad that his legacy does live on. And this is one of those, it's always so tragic when someone is murdered or assassinated and you don't know why. Not that any reason is ever a good enough reason. At least having that gives you some type of closure. But this no answers, no nothing, a killing that was so seemingly random. Mm-hmm. It just, it's heartbreaking. I think it's crazy because I feel like for a lot of murders, especially high profile ones like this, even when there aren't answers, there's like, oh, this is probably why. Not for this one. There's not even that. Really, yeah. Any theory is about as likely as the other. In my mind, I I lean more towards doing it for the fame, the recognition, the notoriety, like he'd always, like Andrew Cunanan had always been trying to get, but I I don't know. I don't either. And I honestly don't believe that they'd ever actually met. I feel like that's something that was completely made up. And that is another just piece in this crazy puzzle of he pretended he he knew this person and we'll never know if they'd ever actually met or not. But it just doesn't seem likely he was a pathological liar. He was always creating this life of extravagance that he didn't actually have instead of just Mm -hmm. being who he was and living his own life. Like, the, I know I said it earlier, but, like, the line of, like, oh, I don't know where I'm going to go have dinner tonight, New York or Paris, makes me want to vomit. That, yeah. And, and I feel like that line encompasses who he thought he was and who he wanted to be. Yeah. I mean, all of it is who he thought he was. But at the end of the day, with basically, it sounds like every story he told a friend or a loved one was a lie or was embellished or had all these truths. I'm like, at the end of the day, who actually are you? I don't think he even knew that. I don't think he did. I mean, he's a murderer and that's that's that. He's a serial killer. He's a, yeah. He killed five people in the span of a spring and summer. Spring and beginning of yeah. the summer. Like, so a span of what, three months? Four? 
Yeah, between late April to mid July. And we don't know his reasonings. We don't. There's a lot known about him, but about why he did something, there's not. Yeah. And so that is the case of the assassination of Johnny Versace. If you want to see more, definitely do check out American Crime Story Season 2, The Assassination of Johnny Versace. Again, because so much of the information is not known, there are parts that are, I guess, theorized, dramatized. Dra- I don't know what the word I is. I think it would be a combination of both. But I actually, um, doing this research for this case and then tonight just going through it, it makes me want to watch it again because mm-hmm. it re- there really is not another case like it. I mean, it's just so crazy. All the twists and turns and the ex-boyfriends and the sugar daddies and the random people that he took advantage of, the people he called his friends that he ended up killing with a fucking hammer. This this man was just so deranged and he he needed help and had no one to get it from, nor did he think he needed it or seek it out or know he needed it. Like, it just, it's such a crazy case. But Darren Chris plays Andrew Cunanan in The American Crime Story, and he does such a fantastic job that I am honestly kind of terrified because I'm like, oh shit, it's almost like you are him. Like, just how well he embodied that character. Yeah. In the exact same way that Cuba Gooding Jr. did not embody OJ in season one. You didn't think he did well? Oh, no. Oh, I thought he did great. Oh, I thought he did great as a character, but in no part of me, that was not OJ. You act like you know OJ. Are y'all on a first name basis? Oh my god. Tyler, is he staying with you right now during coronavirus? Orenthal, can you do the dishes? Thank you. (laughs) Uh, No, he's not. No, but OJ, he speaks very low and slow and has this presence about him. Cuba Gooding Jr. was... Kind of a little bit of a whiny bitch. He was pretty intense. Like, just very outspoken, intense, fast. I get what you're saying. Okay. But Sarah Paulson killed it as Marsha Clark. Oh, Sarah Paulson could play, like, a couch. (laughs) And I'd be like, that is the most believable sofa I've ever seen in my life. She's the best. She is. But, uh, yeah, Darren Chris is great in uh, the season. I will say... Do keep in mind, this season, it does very much focus mostly on Andrew Cunanan. It does. And, you know, does very much also put spotlights on his victims. But while the title of the season is The Assassination of Johnny Versace, realistically, it's more the Andrew Cunanan story. Yeah, I would agree with that. But you do get to see Darren Chris's butt in it, and it's great. It's a beautiful butt. Well, we don't have a postmortem because we shared the case. So, oh, yeah, we don't. That is correct. Um, so we'll just work together for a topic for next week. That works for me. Dang, dude. Episode 100 in the bag. Episode 100. We did it. We made it. I know. I wish I had one of those little um, party poppers. The, the, well, I was thinking the paper that's rolled up that you like, yeah, blow at a birthday party. Yeah. Our listeners who don't know what I'm talking about are very confused. They're like, what is this cat saying? Um, no, yeah, that would be awesome. Cheers! Yay! Claps! All the sounds! But this has been a fantastic 100 episodes. I'm looking forward to 100 more. 
we're gonna pull out all the stops for episode 200 y'all oh my god just get ready we're gonna plan it two years down the road um (laughs) but if you enjoy our podcast if you love what we're doing be sure to rate and review us give us those five stars on apple podcasts we love reading your comments it they brighten our day and and we appreciate you listening and we love bringing you this podcast every week yes also make sure if you haven't uh like and follow us on social media we're on facebook twitter and instagram you can see uh, pictures of the wine we're drinking in our episodes you can see i don't know pictures of our faces and yeah so if you want more blood and wine follow us on social media yeah all right and with that this is i don't say that part you you don't, <laughs> but if you want to, you can, I guess. No, I felt weird. <laughs> okay, uh, well, with that, <laughs> this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO, wash your hands. Bye, you guys. Bye. And yes, wash your fucking hands. <laughs>